Hello and what's up world? I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. We are recording a special episode in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. It's also special because I have one of my best friends ever on the show. Our guest today is Ahmed El Sharbagi, an Egyptian-American entrepreneur and businessman living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been close with Ahmed for at least 15 years. We went to college together, went on spring break to Cancun together, lived together, messed up our lives together, and also learned so much together. In fact, I was with Ahmed when Instagram first came out. I selfishly took the name at Kareem, but Ahmed had much grander aspirations when he took the name Dogs of Instagram, which now boasts over 4.5 million followers. Being as smart as he is, Ahmed enlisted the help of his genius wife and business partner, Ashley, to grow the account into a social media powerhouse. And then they spun off an entirely new business called Lucy & Co., which is a direct-to-consumer brand for pet parents, aka people who own pets. Since this show is all about identity, I wanted to tell a little story about Ahmed and I trying to fit in. Ahmed, do you know what story I'm about to tell right now? I don't, but, but I, I want to say something. Although, you know, four and a half million followers later, that's all great. But I'm still kind of jealous that you got at Kareem and that I wasn't I wasn't smart enough to grab at Ahmed at the time. I wonder if Ahmed, at Ahmed was available. It was. It was, was it? I checked it. And you know no. what I was trying to do? I was trying to match my Twitter account, which has now been inactive for seven years. Oh, such a bad move. Brutal. So one, one good move and one bad move. That's true. I mean, I, although I did when I was super broke about three years ago, I tried to sell at Kareem to at Kareem. Is there a market for that? To Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I sent him a DM. Did, did he respond? No, he didn't get back to me. But then I got a hold of another guy named Kareem who plays some sort of professional sport. His agent was like, um, we're not interested. <laughs> and I was going to sell it for like really cheap to like $5,000. I think which you should, I think you should you should hodl. I I hodl on that, although that hasn't been working out for me lately. No, <laughs> Bitcoin down the drain. So the story I was going to tell was the story of when Ahmed and I so desperately wanted to fit in that we went to a Walmart, I believe, and at the time we had hair that we hated, curly, ugly, dry hair. Now. I think I love my hair. I think Ahmed probably feels the same way about his hair. But at the time, we were desperate to have like this spiky hair look. And so we both went to Walmart together and went into the section for natural hair, found something called Dark and Lovely, which is a product for, uh, I believe, like African-American women. And we went to the register and as, as we were checking out, we were so embarrassed that we were buying this product for ourselves that the lady looked up at us and I believe one of us was like, oh, this is for our mom. We actually like... <laughs> I think one of us got on their phone and was pretending to be talking to their mom. Hey mom, it's, uh, you know, it's called uh, Straight and Beautiful, right? <laughs> So we, we've had a little bit of an identity crisis for a long time, I think. I want to talk about Ahmed's childhood and adolescence. So Ahmed, you were born in Cairo, Egypt, and lived there until you were nine, right? I never really got that experience because I pretty much grew up in Minnesota. What was it like growing up in Cairo? 
You know, I came from a pretty middle-class family in Cairo. So, you know, I think my experience growing up there and from, you know, what I, what I can remember, it was pretty normal. I mean, I don't think it was too different from what it would have been like growing up here, except, you know, just speaking a different language and, and being around Egyptians. I went to a private national school, me, meaning I learned everything in English. So I had a little bit of a base, but, you know, not enough to, to get me around. I definitely, when I moved, I sort of had to relearn it. And I was only, you know, through third grade. So definitely predominantly still spoke Arabic at home. But, you know, I, I had a pretty normal childhood in Egypt and it was you know moving here honestly kind of came as a shock I didn't see it coming we didn't have a reason to leave you know we weren't the typical immigrant story we weren't struggling we weren't fleeing war it just happened uh, my mom my mom met somebody wow uh, my mom and my my biological father were had been divorced for years and uh, my mom met an Egyptian American man who had been living here since the 70s I think our like he knew your dad. I think they were friends. That's possible. Here in Minnesota, highly possible. I, you know, like all twelve Egyptians that were living here in the right. 70s probably hung out for sure. Yeah. So she met this guy, and uh, they decided to get married, and, and we just moved. And so you to, you to Minnesota. So your whole life, there was no talk of moving to the states. Not at all. It was I mean, like you we guys were, were just ha- a happy family in Egypt. We were completely fine. I mean, my, I have an older brother. He was. A senior in high school at the time, life was good. I mean, was, we didn't have any reason to leave. And so it was a pretty typical standard childhood. Your parents were cool and generally just normal parents. Like they were, they weren't too strict. They kind of let you explore yourselves. I didn't have much of a relationship with my father, who had been living in and working in Saudi Arabia for years, which was pretty common back in the late '80s and '90s. A lot of Egyptians were working in Saudi Arabia because there was, uh, you know, a little bit of a boom happening with with oil and everything. So he he was living there. So aside from that, yes, pretty normal kind of upbringing in, in Egypt. Now I can't imagine being nine years old and coming from a warm climate a warm culture where like the streets of Cairo are just filled with human beings. And even if you don't actually know everyone, you kind of feel like you do to moving to what feels more like an actual desert, which is Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really weird. It was really weird moving here. Uh, I mean, I remember vividly the drive from the airport to downtown St. Paul where my stepdad was living in like his basically like bachelor condo. (laughs) And I just remember like really like taking in like the sprawling kind of like highways and like all the space and like how fast we were going. I mean, it couldn't be honestly any different. Like I think if if we would have moved to like New York or New Jersey, I think it would have felt a lot more similar. But, you know, I, I grew up in a densely populated part of Cairo and then this couldn't have been a more different, more of a culture shock. Uh, yeah. Do you remember your first like day or week? Did, does anything really stick out to you? Yeah. I remember one night after, you know, we'd, we'd been there for a couple nights. We wanted to, my mom and my brother and my sister and I wanted to go explore downtown St. Paul. You know, we thought we were in a, in a bigger city. And, uh, you know, around like 7 or 8 p.m., we decided, all right, let's go hit the town. And there wasn't a single human being walking around. I mean, we couldn't believe it. Where was everyone? Could they really be sleeping already? I mean, to this day, it's weird. But I mean, 
it was really weird. I just couldn't even wrap my head around it as a kid. I'm just like, why does everyone go to bed so early? But they weren't in bed. They were probably just at home. Yeah, sure. Because like I downtown St. Yeah. Paul is like m- very much so a working downtown, but yeah. not necessarily. And it might have changed since I've been here, but so. it's never been a place that's like popping off. No. And so you guys were walking around this ghost town. Yeah. And were very confused. Yeah. That that was that's like the thing that that kind of sticks out the most to me from like my first week here. And this is like before, you know, going to school. So so far I've been here. I've been with kind of like getting to know my stepdad who had met maybe one other time. No, actually I'd never met my stepdad before I moved here. Wow. Yeah, this is another weird part of the story. Wow. Yeah. I never, I met him at the airport when we arrived. I talked to him on the phone. My mom had spent like a lot of time describing him to us, but I don't know why. I didn't come to think of it. I don't know why that never took place, but it it was weird. I mean, we just moved here and I was like, there's, there's your new dad. (laughs) Maybe in a way she was protecting you. Yeah, maybe. So that you wouldn't have kind of like a preconceived notion of him or have like any false ideas and rather than just be like, I don't like him. Right. You would just be stuck with him. <laughs> right. I guess that that's one theory. I don't know how many times they, I mean, I, they obviously met, but I, I don't know like how many times. I think this all happened pretty quick. Like within like a year, they met, right? And then they proceeded to mostly talk on the phone. You know, I got to remember too, this is like 1995. So, you know, it was like long distance calls. And, right. You know, so I'm guessing they they just over the course of the next year, they talked enough and decided, all right, we're going to do this. So there wasn't even really an opportunity for us to meet, I don't think. Right. I think he probably visited and met my mom one time. And then the rest of the relationship was long distance until she moved. That's wild. And so you're in Minnesota. You're enrolled in school. You're nine, right? Nine years old? Nine years old. And your brother and sister are here too. Yeah. And so what was it like going to school? Because I, t- I talked before about how when I went to school, I was ESL, like purely ESL. But I also don't remember it because I was so young. You know, this was like preschool for me. And I was only speaking Arabic, cried so much in preschool. Now I realize it's probably because I could not communicate anything and was sent home essentially. So I didn't go to preschool because I cried so much. But I can imagine being nine where you kind of know English, but you primarily know Arabic. But the most important thing is you don't know the culture at all. Exactly. So like you go to, is that elementary school, nine years old? Fourth thir- grade. Fourth grade. So what was fourth grade experience like for a fresh off the boat kid? Tough, tough. Especially for a naturally shy, fresh off the boat kid. You know, I think that that played a lot into it because I've now seen, you know, others come from other countries and, you know, some people just have an easier time sort of navigating some of those things that I had a lot of trouble with. I was not one to approach people. I wasn't really one to to speak up. I was just, I just happened to be a shy kid. And in Egypt, it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. I had friends. I understood the culture. I knew how to navigate like socially with people my age. And when I moved here, it was really different. Things that I thought were funny weren't funny here. (laughs) And things that were funny here, I didn't really get why they were funny. I didn't understand the culture around humor. And that was a big thing. Like it was hard to get people to like you if you can't even like make them laugh. Right. Um, so it was tough. There are a few different incidents that I have, you know, stuck in my memory from that first year that were, you know, a little bit traumatizing. And I think it took me a long time.
time, maybe maybe until college, really, to, to really finally feel like I'd sort of blended in, gotten a grasp of what American culture is like. The other piece that you have to kind of understand is that not only was I shy, but my mom was very sheltering, very, very protective. Not too much unlike other guests you've had on, on the podcast, Kareem. She was afraid, you know? She had the same stereotypes in her mind about America. She thought, I, you know, if she just let me sort of be and go over to friends' houses and sort of assimilate that I would just end up like drinking and doing drugs and having sex. So, you know, those two things together, it, it definitely made sort of blending in and finding my place and understanding my identity a long struggle. I still struggle with it to right. this day. And I think, I think that is one thing I've learned on this podcast is that a lot of people identify with what they call a third culture, which is this nebulous, not specific culture of just being both. Right. Yeah. It's it's of being both. And the both could be anything. It could be Asian American. It could be Latino American. It could be any other thing. But there's a whole wave of people that are like, well, I'm not American. I'm not Arab. I'm Arab American. But that Arab American is just like Asian American or Latino American or any other hyphen American. And that third culture is essentially the sum of the push and pull of the two other cultures. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Did you figure that out like early on or like, did you, like, when did you realize that one, that you could be this third culture and then like be okay with it? Oh, not until like a year ago. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like from my, my solution to fitting in was to be as invisible as possible. Like, mm-hmm. And not in the way that you are describing in being shy and being, you know, just kind of hiding in the shadows. I was very visible, very talkative, but I kind of compressed myself into a flat version of Kareem, which was a very safe, a very comfortable, a very accommodating version of myself, which still exists. And I still do. I find myself doing it, disarming people when I come into a room like you know, sometimes when I'm having a vivid conversation with people, I look around a restaurant and people think I'm like mad or angry. And my partner that I'll be talking to will be like, hey, like ease up on the animated conversation because everyone in here thinks you're yelling at me. And I think that that's like a lesson that I learned early on is that just by looks, I'm automatically a more threatening person, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, dealing with it meant just adjusting and becoming a more vanilla version of myself. And it wasn't until similarly in college that I started to feel like actually one of the things was when I met you, I was like, because historically I had met a lot of Egyptian people and I was always turned off by them because I felt like they were too Egyptian. And then on the other hand, I met a lot of American people and I really liked them, but they would never understand my childhood. Like my dad did not like when people just like came over unannounced, which to my neighbors, American neighbors is like, I could walk into their house and take a can of soda out of their fridge. And their dad would be like, have a great day, Kareem. But if even anyone like were to do something like that in my house, it would be like, I would get in trouble for like letting people into my house. So it was this weird kind of like not fitting in thing. And then I went to college and all of a sudden I meet a lot of other hyphenated people who are like, the right amount of Egyptian 
and American. And I'm like, okay, these are my people. People that are like not too precious about let's, I'm using quotes right now, their home country and are not too precious about their current country, but ha- just have their own thing going on. Yeah. And I think that, that that's when for me it happened. It was huge, huge for me. It, it was, you know, college, right? You're a little bit of freedom and it's the first time in your life really, really for me where it felt like I get to meet new people and like find my own friends. It wasn't just the Egyptians that my parents introduced me to right. through like the other Egyptian parents that they knew. So my options just were a lot greater. You know, I could really like fine tune sort of the kind of Egyptian American I wanted to be. And I, you know, I think ironically enough, meeting you and others who weren't so quote unquote Egyptian actually is what allowed me to start again being okay with being Egyptian. Because before that, like kind of leading up to college, I'd gone through this, like, I hate Egypt phase. I didn't even want to go visit in the summers. I really, really, I think I was resenting it because I was resenting like myself. Right. And the trouble I was having with my identity and like fitting in and like all these different things I dealt with over the years. And they just compounded. I mean, it started with like one small incident when I was in ESL in elementary school. And then, you know, it just kind of compounded over the years. And then of course, like 9-11 came when I was in high school and that really changed everything. Right. So, you know, it, it was like the perfect storm. And by the time I got to like the later years in high school, I was just like, I hate Egypt. Like, <laughs> how do I like, how do I rid myself of that part of my identity completely? Like wow. maybe, maybe I never want to go back ever. You had those thoughts. I had those thoughts. I mean, ex- I told my mom that one summer I was literally wouldn't pack my bag to go visit. I was like, I don't want to go visit. I want to spend the summer here with, like I had finally made some friends and I was like, I want to like be here for the summer and like do things. And like, you know, I'm working on fitting in here guys. And this is going to be a six weeks that I can interrupt that and take me back to the thing that I sort of like resent because of that. Right. And so when you were growing up, was your mom, you said she was really sheltering. Mm-hmm. How did that manifest? Was it just like you felt like you couldn't do what was normal? That's how I always felt. Is like I'm like, it's normal to have a sleepover, guys. Let me sleep over at someone's house. And oh. I remember my parents being like, that's American. Sleepovers are out of the question. Right? Out of the question. I don't know what it is, but it was like, it was like it, I could say anything. <laughs> I could ask for anything, but it was like sleepovers is like an automatic no. For whatever reason. I wonder why. They don't exist really in Egypt. People don't have sleepovers. My parents' excuse was always, you have a house. Yeah. Sleep in this house. My mom literally didn't understand it. Exactly. She was like, why would you go sleep at somebody else's house? Like, (laughs) she's like, no, our kid will come home and sleep at our house. You know, like she just didn't get it. It's such a simple thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Like sleepovers, girls, curfews. I mean, everything was just, and, and I think that, you know, I get it. Like my mom was, was scared and I think she wouldn't have been nearly as sheltering if I was in Egypt. And I, and I know that because my brother, right. you know, his adolescence was spent mostly in Egypt and he got to have a pretty normal life. Like my mom was kind of right down the middle in terms of where parents are in, in terms of the like kind of that monolithic. He probably had more, more freedom, oh, like, but like he, he could like go and come as he pleased. Yeah. Curfew was probably like midnight instead of seven or eight or whatever. Right. Right. And my mom, that that was this what she would say. She's like, listen, it's special circumstances. Like, you're right. I am being a little too protective, but it's because it's scary. And I don't, I don't, she's like, I don't understand the culture. Like, I can't tell the difference between something that's like kind of bad and something that's really bad. 
And so in her defense, like she didn't really have, you know, and like my stepdad was here and I think he understood the culture a little bit more, but it's my mom. Like she, <laughs> she was scared, right. you know, like he was, he was probably fine. He's like, go like, but she was like, no, he's my precious baby. Like he was going anywhere. Was there anything you were able to get away with? I, I have this memory of like being like wanting to fit in. So I wanted to buy music because everyone was buying music. And I'd heard about this band called Guns N' Roses. And I, I didn't even know if I liked it or not, but I was like, I want this CD, Guns N' Roses. And it said, ex- warning explicit on the album cover. And there was a song called Back Off Bitch. And there was all the, I mean, it was like vulgar music and whatever. And my parents were like, of course you can buy that CD. Because they just had no idea. Isn't that funny? They, yeah, but that's what I'm saying is that they actually had no idea. Yeah, that was one thing. Like when it came to like rated R movies totally. or music, my mom didn't care. As long as I was at home, <laughs> she really didn't care what I was doing. Like it was just about when I was out of her sight, like going over to like my American friends' houses, like that was like really scary for her. She was right. literally afraid of like what I might be exposed to at their home. Like bacon. Like bacon or like their parents having like a glass of wine. Right. You know, like she was like, you can't see that stuff. Like For she, sure. didn't, she didn't want it to be normalized. Right. But the truth is it was. Right. I already knew. I watched TV. I watched movies. Like I knew exactly what would happen when I go over to my friend's house. And uh, it didn't really like make a difference. But that was like, that was her justification. Now there, there's one story that you told me a long time ago and I don't remember, so I'm going to let you tell it, but it's about a teacher who kind of really shut you down and embarrassed you. And I believe it was a racist teacher. Yeah, I think I know the story. This is my first brush with racism and it happened in the fourth grade in my ESL class. So you're a year in to living in America. Oh, not even. I'm like months in, in, in the first year I'm here and I'm in, I'm in ESL. Um, which I didn't spend a whole lot of time with. And I think part of it was that I wanted to get the hell out of that class. Because it was a bunch of teachers. So I learned really quick so I can like graduate ESL. I think I was out in six months. Because the teacher. Good. Yeah. Wow. So we're doing vocab. Again, this is like maybe like month one, month two. And I'm I'm learning quick, you know. And uh, she's going through words and the word heaven comes up. And uh, she's like, Ahmed, do you know what heaven means? And, you know, it's quickly like, oh, this is kind of a sensitive question. Like, how do I... And honestly, looking back, here's the answer I came up with. Okay, and I, I think this is pretty impressive for a fourth grader. I decided to be non-political, you know, <laughs> non-religious, and I just said it's a it's a place where good people go after they die. And I thought that was going to be like perfect, like let's move on. And she was like, "Yeah, in America, it's a place where Christians go." Oh my god! Yeah, she actually said that. Yeah, too. and like at the time. Like, of course, it was kind of like kind of a punch in the gut, but it didn't feel that evil. <laughs> like, right. like it was only when I grew up, you know, I got older and I looked back and thought about that conversation. I was like, that woman needed to be fired. You can't say that. That's fucked I up. I should have told somebody something, right. you know, but I just thought like, eh, she's probably right. Oh. I guess I'm in a Christian country and that's what they believe here. I'm not going to change what I believe, but cool you know that's literally was like my thinking I was like eh, she could have let it pass but okay she felt the need to like clarify that to me like I didn't know okay you know and that was it but you know come to think of it I'm like oh my gosh and this woman 
she was the person that the school gave the responsibility to of like sort of onboarding kids that were from different cultures. And she was completely, you know, insensitive. She was a missionary. Right. Ready to convert. Yeah. All those, all those little minds, all those young, hungry minds, and turn them into Christians. You also mentioned something about a pumpkin story, which I don't think I know. Yeah, oh, this is just like an embarrassing little story that you know. I think it was just like a mix of me being shy, but I was brave. And here, Ella, kind of here's how I was brave. You know, a few weeks in to school, I think my mom must have had like some sort of a meeting with the teacher, like a conference. Like, here, how are things going? You know, and uh, my teacher was like, oh, Med's really smart. He knows, he knows his stuff, but, you know, he doesn't really speak up in class. I would love to see him participate a little bit more, raise his hand. He knows the answers to questions. He just doesn't raise his hand. And uh, my mom gave me that feedback. And, uh, you know, I was been kind of like driven. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to start speaking up in class. <laughs> I am going to It's unnatural to me, but I'm going to give it a shot. So we're sitting around. And I, I don't know what Halloween is at all at this point. It's, <laughs> it's like late October. Wait, you, know. you don't know what Halloween is? I don't is. Really know what Halloween That's is. That's so cute, all. actually, though, that like you don't know what Halloween is. Yeah, no. I, and, and actually, to this day, I don't love Halloween. I think it's because I'm traumatized by wow. the story. It's certainly possible that it would stay with you. Yeah. Because I love Halloween, but I always had the best Halloween yeah, ever. Yeah, I have no it's logical reason holiday. not to like it. I can see why it's fun. <laughs> So, I mean, it's free candy. Get to dress up like whoever you want. Right. Walk around, literally collect free candy, free go candy. to parties. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So we're sitting around and like my English at this point, I'm like catching about half of what's going on. Okay. I'm like, I kind of get the gist of what the teacher's doing. But basically she, here's what I thought she was saying. I thought that she was holding up a bunch of pumpkin cutouts that were decorated differently. Each one was uniquely decorated. And I thought she had asked us all when we see one that we loved and that we liked that we would come up to the front of the class and collect it, right? That's what you thought. That's what I thought. And I remember this internal dialogue and it went like this. Dude, you normally, you're just going to wait for the very last pumpkin. Don't do that. When you see one you like, just go up and take it. She step said, into your she power. She wants you to speak up. Step into your power. I'm going to step into my damn power today. So I waited. I wasn't like, I didn't grab like the first one. And then like maybe like the 10th pumpkin she showed. I was like, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so I shot up off my desk and super confidently like walked up to the front of the class and like reached my hand and I was like, I'll have this one. And she just kind of looked at me with like a lot of sympathy. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that another another kid, I don't remember his name, Brian. Brian was also walking up towards the front of the class. And I was like, oh, hell no. You know, Brian's not going to get this pumpkin. This is my pumpkin. I, I I like this pumpkin. And she just looked at me and she was like, oh, I'm mad. I'm sorry. Like, we made these, the students made these pumpkins before you came here. And this is Brian's pumpkin, I think. And I was just like, oh, okay. And I just like turned around, went back to my seat, and I was like, never raise your hand or do anything again. Oh back, back to plan A. Like that did not work out. And it was just like this dumb, like misunderstanding, but it was horrific, right? I, there I was, like finally, like being brave and like putting myself out there and like, well, you know, confidently walking up to the front of the class, only to be told, like, dude, there's no way this is your pumpkin. Like you weren't even here when we made these. And so it was like, it was like things like that, you know, that sort of 
compounded over time and like accumulated and I don't like Halloween. So a couple of road bumps in elementary and middle school, it sounds. By the time you're in high school, how are you feeling? Things are getting better. Things are getting better. You got friends. Yeah. Like I you finally had, sports? had my growth spurt. I, I played some sports. I played a little bit of basketball, a little bit of soccer. Were you a cool kid or just kind of like a middle I, ground kid? I was like still in the, I'm just trying to hide in the, in the, sh- like I was like academically very good. Like I was like, I would go to school, did my homework. I had like individual people at school that I like clung to that were like my friends but I stayed away from like clicks and plus because I didn't do really much with people at my school outside of school. I didn't have opportunities to build real relationships. It was like, you know, you go into class and it's just class. And, you know, the only engagement I'd have with the students is like, well, we're kind of projects together. So and I didn't really have a ton of opportunity to like build real relationships. The socializing that I did outside of school was with other Egyptian Americans. And summers were mostly spent in Egypt. Right. So I didn't even really have the opportunity to, to really make a lot of friends. And I went to a really big high school. So even just semester to semester, everybody would get shuffled around. And so I honestly could get away without really needing to make a lot of friends at school. No one noticed. So right? it was actually just, a pro for you. Yeah. No, I, I exactly. At the time, I was like, I wanted to play it safe. I'm just like, if I just keep my head down, do my work. I will one day get out of this place. I don't, I don't want to be in high school. Like it's not. So that's what I did. And it wasn't, you know, I think the last couple of years of high school, things changed a little bit. I just started hanging out with this one guy who really like kind of like took me in. And all of a sudden I had this group of friends and they were like a little bit rebellious. And that's when I started kind of trying things and, and doing some of the things that I was like, you know, and that was my biggest time of protest with my mom. Yeah, it got pretty intense at that time. I mean, I was like, there was a phase when I was like, you know, sneaking out at night. Oh yeah, I know that phase. Oh yeah. Had that phase. Yep. yep. It was so easy for me. Look, for, for, me some, for some reason, my parents didn't blink an eye when I was like, I'm going to bed and it would be 8 p.m. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm going to bed. And I would like go down to my room in my basement and then just literally climb right out the window. And I wouldn't come home till like three in the morning. Right. And I never got caught except for on this podcast because my mom has made it apparently very clear that she listens to this. Hello, mom. So <laughs> anything else you want to talk Too late about? to ground me. <laughs> Egyptian mom. Man, they, she can find, find a way. A way yeah. She can find a way. Yeah. So you're sneaking out. I'm sneaking Do- out. I did get caught eventually. Oh, I, can't, I climbed back in and my mom was in my room. Yeah. Oh, she was in your room. Yeah. How disappointed was she? Oh. Do you remember the look on her face? Was it anger or was it No, sadness? it wasn't anger. It was worse. It, it was, was sadness. Like, oh, That's guilt. The worst. I, I was like, I wish she was angry. She wasn't. She was just like, why are you doing this? How come immigrant parents are so good at laying guilt on their oh, yeah. children? It's like, we get because it. It's effective. It's like, we know you moved here for a better life. Yeah. But do you really have to rub it in all the time? Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they, they're really good at that. Yeah, I think it's because it's effective. It worked for the longest time. But that's when my mom and I really clashed was kind of like that junior, senior in high school. But, you know, I graduated. I kept, I kept going to school. I didn't, you know, didn't become like a complete fuck up or anything. And uh, I got into college. So my mom was mostly satisfied with that. And did she let off the uh, the brakes then a little bit? Once you got into college, was it like, okay, he's going to be fine? I forced her to. Yeah. By the time I got to college, I had basically had all my demands met at that point. Like I had like 
you know, that those two, those two years leading up to that with an, enough protesting and insisting my mom understood that, especially with me going off to college, like there was nothing she could do. And so I had a hundred percent freedom at that point. The, right. day I, the day I went to college and I, and I actually lived at home during college, but I, I was free to do right. what I wanted. If I didn't want to come home, I didn't come home and stay at, I stayed at your guys' house a lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, you know, college was great for me. College was amazing. And so, was, yeah, we were friends. I remember. Yeah. We hung out a lot. Yeah. We really started to feel like individual people, I feel, right. at that time. Not like avatars for what we wanted to be, but actually becoming who we were. Right. I was just going to say that college set the tone for everything that would, that would sort of happen after that uh, until today. And so you, you studied economics yeah. At the University I, I went of to, I went in originally trying to, I wanted to study engineering and then basically realized I had all this like socializing to catch up on that I'd missed out on for the past 10 years or so. And, uh, you know, engineering was really going to get in the way of that. And so I was a very solo major intense and it's also like lonely. I, I think you kinda, don't yeah. collaborate as much no. as you would in a business pitch or like in a case study. Right. So, so you chose I, your major partially based on socializing. I wanted to leave enough room wow. and time to socialize without flunking my classes. Because what happened the first semester is I did a lot of socializing and school always came easy to me. So I just thought like, I don't need to study. But like, shit was getting real. Like engineering classes in college were tough. And to be successful, you needed to do a lot of work outside of class hours. You needed, most people had you know, someone that could help them. They would meet up and, you know, there'd be study groups and it's really, it's, you have to be super, super dedicated to do well. And and I really had to make that choice. I had, I made like an intentional choice that it just wasn't worth it. I wanted to spend the next four years, like, like kind of like figuring out who I am, like breaking out of my shell. That's crazy. And I think it was the right call. Oh, for sure. I made the right call. It's I interesting think it though important. to think that if you hadn't been so hindered socially, that you may have felt like you should do engineering just because like it's a better job or whatever, you know, kind of rationalizations you would have had. But like, I pretty much did the same thing. I was like, what is the major that's going to provide the most amount of opportunity to have fun mm-hmm. that I don't have to like spend my days laboring over these like textbooks, going to these classes. And, you know, fortunately, again, I got lucky to major in something that I actually started to love and that I ended up doing for a career, but it could have certainly gone the other way. Totally. And it's almost like ironic because I think like engineering is one of those like stereotypical paths that like Egyptian parents want you to take. And it was like that sheltering, again, to your point, was kind of the reason I didn't go that path. So maybe if, you know, if I was allowed to do a little bit more, Maybe I would have been an engineer. Right. My parents would have been more satisfied with that. And were your parents things worked out, but were they cool with you choosing like business or economics, like pivoting that early pivot? Yeah. Did you have to have a conversation with them? I had to have a conversation to explain why I was flunking my my engineering (laughs) classes. First semester was okay. Then second semester is when things really went downhill. And so we we did. We had to have like a whole conversation. It was it was pretty dramatic actually. My mom was really disappointed. She was worried. I mean, I was, was looking like I was gonna like drop out of college, oh, or like wow. flunk college. And uh, I made a promise to her. I was like, I'm going to switch majors. I don't want to do engineering, 
But what I will promise you is I will make the dean's list for every single semester until I graduate. And I did. Damn. I made the dean's list every every semester after that and was able to get my GPA back up to like a 3.7. That's incredible. Despite those first couple of semesters. So you must be really smart because I hung out with you a lot and I don't think we ever really studied. No. We kind of, we kind of would like go to a coffee shop, but more so to socialize and hang out with other people. It was like, let's study tonight, but it was more like, let's hang out and like flirt. Yeah. I mean, we just sit at the coffee shop and write on each other's like Facebook wall. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So that, so you get through college. It's cool. You and I move in together and you decide to pursue an MBA at the University of St. Thomas. Yeah. That was a mix of a few things. One, I realized like an economics degree doesn't really have like a clear job path. It was also 2008. It was the recession. And I had done, although academically I'd done well, I had done nothing to prepare myself for the job market. No so internships. I was, no internships. No didn't mentorships. Didn't think about it. No mentorships. No clue what I wanted to do with this economics degree. So in a buy time kind of play, I came up with the idea of like, well, I just won't go into the real world yet. What can I do? And I did a little bit of research and I literally did not know what an MBA was. And I, I found it on Google. I was like, oh, you can get a master's in business. Well, this seems like very relevant to what I'm doing or what I studied. And it buys me time. But, you know, most universities require or pretty much require you to have gone out and worked for a few years before you can do your master's in business, including the University of St. Thomas. But when I went to talk to the admissions people, you know, I said, is it like absolutely necessary? And they said, yeah, unless you get a 700 or whatever, I can't remember the exact scores on your GMAT. Like it was like some score that, and they sort of said it in like a, a laughing kind of way. I was like, all right, I'm just going to go do that then. <laughs> and I did. I went and got like, I beat that score. I love that all of your stories end with, and then I did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I put my mind to it and I, uh, I studied, I got the score and I came back and I was like, so, and they, they, they enrolled me and and gave me actually some scholarships and some, and some money. And I had two years now to, to come out of my shell some more. We moved in together. I had Um, a great time. Had a great time. Lots of ups and downs. Lots of ups and downs. Worth it. Yeah. And in this time, and any time before, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was that a consideration in the mind of Ahmed El Shabuggi? Or was it always like, I'm going to work for a corporation, a major corporation. I'm going to be like a CEO someday. I started to flirt with the idea of one day starting a business. But I thought that what you had to do was spend 10, 20, 30 years in like working for other people, moving up the ladder saving a lot of capital so that when you're 50 years old, you can finally go off and be the CEO yourself of your own company if you if you so chose. And if, and if you didn't, then you're good because you've been climbing the ladder and maybe you are the CEO of Target or whatever. Right, right. So like I'd started to flirt with the idea, but it, at that point, it seemed like this like out there dream, like not something I could really like do as a young person in my 20s or even 30s, that didn't seem realistic. I had no idea how one would do that. But then a lot of things happened to me and in the world that obviously opened up the doors for things like that to start happening to people. And is that mostly like Zuckerberg or whatever? The internet. Yeah. In the internet, really. I mean, not that the internet didn't exist before that, but what you could do with the internet and like, yeah, stories of people like inventing 
jobs and inventing careers and businesses, that really grabbed, I think, both our attention. So yeah. what did we talk about, you know, at our apartment? Also, when I was in grad school, that's what we would talk about at night. I mean, we would just go off for hours talking about all these people out in San Francisco and what they right. were doing and all these ideas and the, you know, Tim Ferriss and the four-hour work week and like all these things. I, like you and I were thinking about all this. For we sure. were like, we want to do that. Right. But, you know, I still had my like realist mindset on. And so I was still like, I was having those conversations at night, but during the day I was still like going to class and applying for internships and trying to get my dream job at like XYZ Corp. Which you did. Which I did. And then you worked. I at- worked for Target in corporate finance for three years. I didn't realize it was that long. I always thought it was like a year. It felt, yeah, it felt really short. Three years is a long time. It was a long time. Two roles and it was fine. You know, I I never, I didn't really get any other experience in corporate America aside from that. And so I don't have much to compare it to, but it was fine. I don't think I have anything against Target, but I absolutely hated it. Um, I remember that you would be like, I don't know, man. These people all want to talk about sports and I just have nothing to say. Uh, Like you were always like, I just don't know what to say. Like everyone's talking about the football game and I'm like, I don't watch football. Right, right. The culture, especially in finance, you can imagine, you know, it's a lot of bros and it's like, if you didn't watch college sports, if you didn't have like 16 fantasy teams, there just wasn't much else to talk to the other guys about. And it was mostly like males. So like my brain, you know, was good at numbers and like I understood finance, but like I wasn't that kind of guy. I actually vibed a lot more with like creative people on like a, you know, shooting the shit level. Right. That's who I want. I, I was gravitated to and who I got along with. And so that was part of the reason I, I didn't, I did not enjoy it. You know, I, I wanted to get out. And then it was just, it was just so big and I felt so small and with all the things happening in the world, I just like, I looked at myself and I was like, what is the end goal here? I'm not going to ever be the CEO of Target. I mean, they're just, just not going to happen. I'm not going to politic my way to that position or really any position that high. Like I could, I could see my ceiling there already. And I was just like, that's depressing. And the, the job was a little slow paced. I just need to get out. And so tell me about the story of dogs of Instagram. Yeah. So dogs of Instagram. Because right. it was kind of an accident. Yeah. As how many things happen in this world. Things that work. So prior to Dogs of Instagram, I had really started to get serious about this idea of like launching something, right? So I started to like make friends with anybody who could code that I could find, including one guy I went to to grad school with. And we would meet like once a week and we would talk about ideas and we would quote unquote launch companies on a napkin like all the time. And we would never get anywhere with them ever. And I was, you know, I had a full-time job at Target. But then Dogs of Instagram happened because I was on Instagram and I posted a picture of Lucy, my dog, which it's all very ironic. So I didn't, we never had, I don't know if it about you, you yeah. had pets growing no, up. No, I wanted to talk about this. Isn't <laughs> then that like in Arab culture, like it's pretty rare to have a dog. It's very rare, like like less than a percent. Yeah. It's really rare. And so for now, your whole life to be dedicated to dogs in some capacity it's, is pretty interesting and amazing. Unbelievable. I mean, my my biological father, who has never left like the Middle East, he's still like, he doesn't understand what I've explained it to him many times. He does <laughs> not understand what I do. Is he proud of you though? Can he be proud of you without understanding? Somehow he is. I was afraid he wasn't going to be, you know, but he is. He doesn't seem to need to get it. He's just like, cool. Like, so you're supporting yourself and- 
you know, you're not like sinning or like, you know, it's like you're making an honest living and you have your own <laughs> business. Like, cool. Right. Which, which is cool. Like, I, I was just like, surprised by that, you know? And so, yeah, I didn't, didn't have any pets growing up. And then I got a dog. Not only that, I was afraid oh. of dogs. So that's the other I thing that people that. might not know. Okay. Most like Arabs, Middle Easterners, like living abroad are kind of scared of dogs the way people are like scared of spiders here. Right. right. Like there's like, because nobody has them in their home, they're kind of misunderstood and they're seen more as like pests. Right. right. Like, ah, oh, like this dog's coming at me. And so I was like, literally like scared of dogs. Like, until I was like a pretty like grown human being. And then you got a dog while we were living together. I, at that point, I wasn't scared of dogs anymore. Right. But, but you'd never lived with one. I'd never lived with one. We did a pretty interesting job of, of raising that dog together. Yeah, interesting is an interesting way to put it. We were, co- we were co-raising a dog in an, a condo that I realized did not allow dogs. They did not allow dogs. We were not supposed to have that dog. The people that rented that condo to us said no pets on the lease. It was very clear. As a matter of fact, I think we tried to ask and they were like, no. And we did it anyways? Yes. We would do something like that. Yeah. Neither of us knew the first thing about taking care of a dog, but you got a dog and, you know, I must have felt like we didn't have enough on our on our hands <laughs> and that, you know, I wanted to spice things up. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get a dog too. <laughs> and I went and got this little tiny like half pug dog. You were obsessed with it. Lucy. You were obsessed with the name of of it though. You were like, it's a bug. Right. It's not a pug. It's a bug. You said it seven thousand times. A, it's a, yeah. So it's a it's a pug Boston Terrier. So they they call it a bug. So yeah, I went and got this tiny little alien looking dog, and it was funny because like no one ever believes the story, but it was one Sunday. I woke up from a dream where I had a dog, and I like I opened a door to like my convertible car, and the, the dog like jumped into the passenger seat and I jumped into the driver's seat and we like drove off and it was like this beautiful sunny day and I had this friend and I woke up that Sunday from that dream and then I got Lucy that day. I was just like obsessed. I was like, I have to, there's like, it's like a sign. Like I need to go do this. I really remember. I, I do remember it happening that way because yeah. you had never mentioned getting a dog to me. Right. And then I came home one day and there was another dog in our apartment. Right. And it was Lucy. Yeah. So anyway, I have this dog and Instagram comes out and I post a picture of her and I posted pictures of other things and, you know, people don't really like the other things that I posted, but Lucy got a lot of likes, you know, that I'm on, on Instagram some more and I noticed that I'm starting to follow people on Instagram because I like their dogs. Like I'm literally following strangers because I'm like, oh, this lady has a bug. And I want to like, I want to see, she seems to be posting pictures of her and I want to like follow that. I want to see more of this. And it's very early Instagram. Very early. 20. There's like. 11. There's like 5,000 people on the whole platform, right? It's super early. It's like months in. And there are other people posting pictures of dogs. And these pictures are getting placed on what used to be called the popular page. So Instagram was so small. There would be a page of 12 popular photos on Instagram and they'd be the same 12 for everybody on Instagram. We'd see the same 12 photos. Wow. Right. I don't even remember that. Yeah. I remember that because, uh, I'll get to that in a second, but you know, I noticing all these dogs on there, I'm, I'm following these people that I'm discovering on the popular page, again, because of their dogs, but then I'm also having to see like their family vacation pics and like pics of their like kids and it just kind of hit me like I was like so up to that point like I said I'd been trying to start all these different things and I was really interested in social media at that point right like Twitter was taking the world by storm Facebook was obviously huge and established at that point 
And I just like had a feeling about Instagram. I was like, this is a really cool platform, how it's like super photo based. And okay, how can I like do something with this? And I noticed on Twitter that a lot of people like would just find a niche and would just tweet about that specific niche and would sort of become experts in that field. And it all just kind of came together. And I thought like, wouldn't it be great to have one account to follow for all your dog photo needs instead of following all these strange people to, to catch a picture of their dog here and there? And so I went home and I started Dogs of Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember that. Yeah, it lasted 24 hours. Wow. And then it became obvious to me, like, what am I doing? I'm the first person doing this. Like, I just started Dogs of the Universe, Dogs of the World, <laughs> Dogs of Instagram. And that's right. how, like, that's how I arrived at Amazing. That. Yeah. And here's the amazing thing about it. The way it works is you submit a picture of your dog via email. And I thought it was going to take a long time for somebody to, like, take the time and actually send a picture to me. But the first email came in when Dogs of Instagram had 70 followers, like seven zero. And I was just, I just knew, I was like, if somebody's willing to take the time to email a photo so I can show it to 70 people, this thing's going to really take off. Like if I had a thousand followers, imagine how many emails I'd be getting. And like, sure enough, that that's kind of what happened. And it just snowballed and it grew like insanely uh, with Instagram. As basically as Instagram grew, it grew right along with it. And then all these other like of Instagram accounts popped up and right. became like an insane hashtag. And so what was the turning point? Was it when you got to a million? Was that when you were like, holy shit, this is... No, it was like before that. Because branded content deals were already coming in. Yeah, it was around 200,000 followers. Well, I knew at like 10,000 followers that like I had something. Okay, so influencer marketing didn't really exist at that time. But I was seeing it, right? I could, I could see, I was like, I have a large audience surely there's a way to like monetize that in the future so i started to reach out to like pet stores like literally like mom and pop pet stores and i would literally cold email them like hey i've got like ten thousand followers on this thing called instagram like here's a link go check out instagram and i post dog photos and i could talk about your pet shop <laughs> and nobody responded i didn't get a <laughs> single response i'm pretty sure these people were just like what is this kid talking about like never heard of instagram you got to think like these are like mom and pop pet shops. So anyway, that, that didn't work. But then like months and months and months later, a year or two later, when, around the time we hit 200,000 followers, the brand started to come to us. And yeah. And then it turned into a and real business. And marketing became a real thing and it turned into a business. And that's when, you know, Ashley and I were dating at the time, which, you know, she's American. And, uh, you know, she's my girlfriend at the time. And so... There's like another interesting piece of the story, right? Like, you know, I don't know about, about your mom or your parents, but it was always kind of expected that I would marry an Egyptian, like Muslim woman. It was very explicitly kind of drilled in from like a very young age. Like, you're not going to marry an American girl. It's just not going to happen. So I'm like pretty seriously dating this American girl. And not only that, but we're like kind of building a business together. And we started to flirt around with the idea of like quitting our jobs because dogs of Instagram was becoming a business. And so during that time we decided, look, we're going to, we're going to do this, but we've got to like, we've got to take this platform that we have and build something more permanent, more ours. Plus I didn't like know a ton about media. So like I wasn't really interested in starting a media company. I just didn't think that I would fare well at that. It didn't, it just didn't. But retail had always interested me. Right. I understood it. I love the idea of like selling a physical product that I right. could like hold and touch and see. It just like was like like being a merchant. It was like the most old school like 
type of business. And I, and I, it just made sense to me. That's cool. You know, so we decided to, to launch Lucy and co and quit our jobs. We quit our jobs the same week and just went all in. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. And so now it's been how many years? We quit our jobs in August of 2014. So we just hit our five year anniversary. Wow. That's unbelievable. Incredible. And you guys have not raised any outside money. No. It's been all bootstrapped and revenue driven. Yeah. And and look, I mean, my only goal up until recently with all of this was to not have to have a job. Right. I read, I read, I was going to read this quote from you, which I think is so good and so eloquently stated, but you said, I'm proud that I haven't had a job in five years. That used to be my only measure of professional success. And in many ways, it's still my threshold. I find that so inspiring because it's like, that is like, I own my life. I can do whatever I want. This is what's most important to me. And I think that you relate so much to that quote because we did spend so much time when we lived in an apartment together, like talking about basically how to hack life. Right. Right. Like how we were going to find a way to not have to do the nine to five struggle for the rest of our lives in a country where we're a little bit of a disadvantage being brown and having like weird names. And, you know, it was like, how can we get around that and be in control of our own destiny? And it's huge. And that's why I say like, it's still the threshold because, okay, so now I have bigger aspirations. But if they don't work out, I'm still okay with falling back on like, I still don't need to have a job. Like I could, I could live and die and that would be my measure of success. And I'd be a hundred percent okay with that. That's amazing. I've, I've had that revelation. I think after you did probably, but one day I woke up and I was like, I'm so happy with my life and where it's at and with my business. And like, if it doesn't get huge, cool. If it doesn't sell to another big company, Cool. As long as I can just do whatever I want to do, not have a boss, not have a schedule, not have people telling me what to do. I'm as a happy camper. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, we, we, we both, we did it right. Like, and we, and I think in a lot of ways we still look to each other to sort of check. Are you still doing that? Great. Like I'm still <laughs> doing that too. Like we we're we're in this together kind of thing. Like, has, right. Has, has your, so in my industry, I've been able to, more or less, at first, I was very reluctant about being myself. And it was a continuation of my early elementary school and middle school and high school days. College, I was a bonanza, could do whatever I want. But afterwards, again, I found myself wanting to be a regular guy, right? Like when I worked at my first agency jobs and ad agencies, when I worked at even Advice in the New York Times, it was all like, let me not stir the pot too much. Let me just like make sure that everyone likes me. Let me make sure that I can be under the radar and valued for my work, but not a different weird guy. Recently, I've become even more and more vocal about kind of the things that are going on in my head or the things that are going on in my life and not trying to hide behind anything at all. Have you had a similar experience with being Ahmed El Shabagi, the founder of Dogs of Instagram, the founder of Lucy & Co., in an industry that I would assume is generally populated by Americans or just white people in general, like dog owners, dog influencers, entrepreneurs. Is there ever kind of like a internal battle that you have or are you just yourself now? Well, here's the thing. I'm still trying to figure out what myself is. I've changed a lot over time. I don't know if that's good or bad, 
I've been telling myself that it's good, that that's what life is. You're supposed to like live it and grow and evolve. And it's okay to not be the same person you were like yesterday. Like I'm literally just not shy anymore. I, I just <laughs> kind of figured out how to outgrow that. And so in terms of like, I don't think that I like actively kind of suppress who I am. I think I've gotten to a point where so much about my life has become sort of like normal. I married my girlfriend. We've been married for four years and we have a child together and he has the hair that we were trying to get <laughs> when we went to, to, to Walgreens and got that, that straightening stuff. Like, you know, so in some ways I still found a way to do it just through like, through a child, <laughs> oh my kid, by marrying someone with like That's good amazing. hair. And so like, I think my life has led me to a place where like, I sort of have what looks like, if somebody didn't know my name and couldn't see me, we, we would appear to just be like a regular old American family. And so I'm now actually trying to, again, like sort of find my, to make sure I don't lose too much of my Egyptian American identity and like trying to figure out how to like weave that back in. But I think I've sort of used that as like, I don't know if like a crutch is the right word, but like, because like my wife's always with me when we go do anything business related, like I'm already only half, mm -hmm. like the business is already only half Egyptian. Mm -hmm. I sort of have an, a, a person with me who already has like a normal sounding name. Right. And so I sort of get a free pass. Like, oh, he must not be like, an Ahmed Ahmed. Like he's like, you know, he's like, yeah, like an American Ahmed. And so, you know, I, I gotta have, that gives me the luxury to like, I don't have to worry about that as much because of that. You've accomplished the American dream, the standard issue, Literally. the good one, the one that everyone wants. You've done it. The one that's kind of a myth. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a myth to you. No. How do you feel about wrapping this up? We've, yeah. we've talked for an hour. Good. Thank you, Ahmed. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, it was good to see. And look, we didn't like we didn't giggle. I know. Actually, I thought we would. I didn't think we were going to giggle. Really? I just had a feeling that this would be You're a good, a ser good serious conversation. Thank you so much for coming. Can't wait to see what y'all do next. That's Ahmed El Shabagi, everyone. Thank you. Keep up with Ahmed and follow him on Instagram at El Ahmed, and make sure to also follow at Dogs of Instagram and at Lucy and Co. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. We'll see you next time. 